This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. What's going on, everyone, and welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio. We've partnered up with Attack IQ to create something special for all of our listeners. We've created the Introduction to Easy Framework course. This course serves as a holistic frame of reference for threat intelligence analysts and cybersecurity practitioners that are looking to build, enhance, or correct their cybersecurity programs. The Easy Framework was originally created by our very own Chris Cochran, and Easy is an acronym. E, elicit requirements. A, assess collection plan. S, strive for impact. And Y, yield to feedback. To get enrolled, check us out at hackervalley.com forward slash easy. And with that, we'll see you in class. In this episode, our guest is Kirsten Todd, a cybersecurity innovator for small and medium-sized businesses. Kirsten is also behind creating the legislation for Department of Homeland Security. There's very few subjects that Kirsten doesn't have experience on in cybersecurity, and she's also the managing director of the Cyber Readiness Institute. Chris and I had a great time speaking to Kirsten, and she comes with a wealth of knowledge. So let's jump right into this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. Today, our special guest is Kirsten Todd. Kirsten is someone who is constantly solving problems and building solutions around them. In addition, Kirsten is also the managing director of the Cyber Readiness Institute. Kirsten, we had a chance to speak to you a few weeks ago, and Chris and I were both blown away by your background. It's a true pleasure to speak to you again, and most importantly, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be on. Kirsten, like Ron said, what an amazing background and career that you've had thus far. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Sure. And it's it's more a, a story of uh, can't hold down a job, I think, over, over many decades. But <laughs> I'm a recovering bureaucrat, so I spent a lot of time in government. The White House Drug Policy Office worked in the uh, White House Domestic Policy Office and then uh, went up to the Hill and worked in the Senate. I worked for Senator Lieberman and through a, a series of political and legislative challenges, I was working on the Hill for the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee in 2001. And my first assignment was a hearing on critical infrastructure protection scheduled for September 12, 2001. So 9-11 happened on that Tuesday, and we were the only hearing on that Wednesday to go forward. And that's relevant because it's really when I got involved in cybersecurity. I ended up working on the legislation to create DHS for the next year, specifically focused on drafting the directorates for uh, cybersecurity, infrastructure protection, bioterror, and R&D. And spent time out in California, worked for the governor's office, uh, did some teaching, worked for a nonprofit, came back to uh, Washington, D.C. and worked for an organization called Business Executives for National Security, BENS, and worked on a commission that helped bring together public and private resources following natural disasters, specifically Hurricane Katrina. Worked for a company and developed a crisis and cyber risk management practice and started building out a an understanding of campus security and taking some of the lessons learned from government and applying them to universities, and then started my own company in 2011. 
Liberty Group Ventures and uh, was brought in to work on the NIST Voluntary Cybersecurity Framework. And from that work was asked by uh, President Obama and Secretary Pritzker to run President Obama's Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity. And following that in 2016, with some of the commissioners, launched a nonprofit uh, with CEOs of companies such as uh, MasterCard and Microsoft and the retired CEO of IBM to help provide uh, free tools for small businesses to improve their cyber readiness. And so today, (laughs) on this day, I am primarily focused on that work with the Cyber Readiness Institute and really helping small businesses and uh, just trying to do better in the space of cybersecurity by helping to focus on human behavior so that we create broader education initiatives and understanding for everybody on what they can do to be more cyber secure. So that definitely wasn't 30 seconds or less, but <laughs> there it goes. There it goes. <laughs> no, that's f- fantastic. I think one thing that I really like kind of keened in on was the SMB work that you're doing. When you look at big enterprises, they have tons and tons of budget to throw at these cybersecurity problems. But for SMBs, it's not necessarily the case. What are some of the things that you're teaching these SMBs about being safe in this tumultuous world we call cybersecurity? Well, it's a great point, uh, Chris, because the primary challenge that we're seeing is, and, and even when we started working on this issue back in the late 90s, when we developed the information sharing and analysis centers, was that we were taking those approaches and policies and solutions and tools that we were using for big businesses, and we were just telling small businesses to just shrink them down and use them for themselves. And the analogy I think I shared with you earlier and and that I make is one to pediatric medicine, which is for the longest time, we used to think we could just take adult medicine and make it smaller for kids. But what we now recognize is that it's a very different journey. The destination is the same. We want healthy human beings. The destination is the same when we're looking at companies. We need secure companies. But how we get there is different. And so one of the things that we're focused on at the Cyber Readiness Institute is human behavior, because what we do see is that small businesses don't have the resources to buy the latest and greatest technology. And in doing so, it's helping them understand that by focusing on human behavior, they can make sure that their employees are force multipliers for security and that they're not actually the greatest vulnerability, which really is a lesson for any organization, um, big or small, because what we continue to see is that entities, organizations, companies are breached most often through uh, human error. And so if that's a lesson we can teach small businesses, then they can create that foundation for security and ultimately become stronger for global value chains. Speaking of human behavior, there was another interview that I saw uh, with you on it, and you were speaking about the power of people to make change. So when we're looking at SMBs and cybersecurity, what kind of power do we have at our disposal to make change and make better decisions within cybersecurity? So it's a great question, Ron, because I think particularly in cybersecurity, we think the solutions lie in technology. And I would argue it's quite the opposite because as I was just saying, you know, human beings can be your greatest vulnerability or they can be your greatest asset. And regardless of how much you've invested in technology, you're never going to take the human being out of the equation. There's a lot of effort right now, and there should always be to the extent that it makes sense to move security away from the end user, meaning take away those vulnerabilities from from human error. But we're not going to be able to do it all the time. And rather than seeing that as a source of fear and concern, it's recognizing that every individual has the ability to take on their own accountability and responsibility for security. 
And if you create a culture where every employee recognizes that and takes the action, then you empower your culture to be stronger, not because of the technologies, but because of each individual set of behaviors. And it's very simple and straightforward, but it is very much about education and awareness. And in this day and age where everybody has a smartphone and often everybody's working from a laptop or a desktop, there is no excuse not to have that awareness and education. The analogy we hear a lot about is that to a car, which is, you know, you don't have to be a mechanic to drive a car, but you need to know when to change the oil. You need to know what a flat tire uh, looks like and, and feels like and those basic things. And that's really the case with technology. I love that car analogy. But when you look at educating users, what are some of the best ways to educate those users? Some folks use uncertainty and doubt to, to scare people into doing the right thing. But are there other ways to, to train folks into doing the right thing when it comes to cybersecurity? Absolutely. And I'm not a big fan of the uncertainty and doubt approach because I don't think fear empowers people. But it's that recognition for individuals that helping them understand what their actions can and should do to fortify security. And in some cases, it's helping them understand the why. Ransomware and authentication become really big issues right now. And when we explain to individuals that having a strong password prevents somebody from accessing the network, which then could allow them to shut down the network through ransomware or steal information, then that helps them to understand what that does. I think sometimes when you just say you should have a strong password, that's not enough. Small businesses and individuals don't always need to know the why, but it certainly helps to have the context. Because the other piece that we continue to be um, educated on uh, in this space is software updates. You know, we all get the updates in the upper right-hand corner that says click here. But if people don't really understand what that means, then they're not going to be incentivized to shut down their computer for 20 minutes. But when they understand that it's a vulnerability, that it's essentially a Band-Aid, a patch that needs to be put on the network to make you more secure. And while that 20 minutes may be inconvenient in the scheme of things, recognizing that that could be an, an entry point for a malicious actor, not just to your network, but to your businesses, that helps to empower the individual to understand how their actions impact, again, not just what they're doing, but what their broader business enterprise. Yeah, but the 20 minutes is very discouraging when your computer goes down and you need to update. It's like right when I get into the middle of some work. <laughs> a great time to go grab a dark chocolate or your, your beverage of choice. <laughs> exactly. And we were just talking a little bit about more devices and we're in a more connected world. We're going through a huge digital transformation right now, especially with all of that going on and, and being on social media and having everything integrated. Do you see uh, more risk for SMBs and big organizations? What are some things that you're educating those on when it comes to this connected world? You make a great point about the interdependencies, Ron, because I think that is one of the big challenges. And when we were working on the commission in 2016, it was right when the Mirai Dine attacks happened. And what that attack was about was essentially accessing a network through a baby monitor. There's more to it than that, but that, that's a way to simplify it. And what it meant was our critical infrastructure doesn't exist in silos, that we've created interdependencies across the networks, which mean that we are opening up all infrastructure to non-critical entities. So you could be working with a water utility, but if your network is accessed because you've used an insecure device 
such as Alexa or something else like that. I'm simplifying it, but it's creating these interdependencies. And so what we talk to small businesses about is how to keep your personal and your professional networks separate to ensure that the way that you access those networks, essentially your passwords, are separate and distinct when you get breached to ensure that you change them. Remembering that a passphrase and multi-factor authentication really are, are the strongest ways to keep that resilience across the interdependencies that we've created. And really, there is no access point that isn't connected to other access points. So a lot of times people will say, oh, it's just the account to do online shopping for my favorite store. Well, if that gets hacked and breached, how does that allow a malicious actor to then use your other data? And I think particularly for small businesses, what we often hear is why I wouldn't be a target. I'm not important. I'm not critical. But what's so important for small businesses to remember, as well as for individuals, is that you may not be the destination, but all you need is an opening to get to the destination for a malicious actor. And that certainly could be a small business or an individual. How do you cultivate this culture of cybersecurity for folks, both within your household and within a business, as you're talking about this interconnectedness that we are developing, it's getting more and more complex, whether you're talking about devices or you're talking about applications and even social media. So what are some of the ways that you would cultivate that feeling and that culture of cybersecurity? It's a great question, Chris, because it very much comes to psychology. I mean, I'm a big fan of saying that to excel in cybersecurity, there has to be an interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary approach. It's not just about math and science. It's about history, psychology, policy, sociology, all of these disciplines. And to your question, this is really where the psychology about ingraining habits becomes important. And I'll, I'll make another analogy to seatbelts. For the longest time, we didn't wear seatbelts, and then they became the law, and then there were reminders in the car, and now it's very much a part of what we do. It's inconvenient, to put it simply, from going from not wearing one to wearing one. But it's, it's a simple step that we've now, it's been inculcated into our culture. And so the same is true for these habits. It's how do you develop the habits through education and awareness to make sure that you're making those steps around multi-factor authentication, taking those extra seconds, really, to do so, to ensure that you're clicking onto the software updates that you're paying attention to what a phishing email looks like, taking the time and the effort to just be deliberate about everything that you do online. And to your point about social media, I think it's one of the greatest challenges that we have right now. To be honest, I was pretty dismayed and infuriated when I read about Twitter and Facebook's plans to change the algorithms post-election to limit disinformation. Because what that essentially says is they've always had the capability, they just haven't been motivated, had the will or the motivation. And I, I think that's important because we have to understand that we can't rely on companies to protect us. We can rely on the government, but we can't rely on companies. And so everything that we do when we're on social media and online shopping, et cetera, we have to take the efforts ourselves to know what it means to be secure based on our own risk management profile. When Chris and I were at a conference, I believe it was Dev Color, it was last year, one of the creators of the Facebook newsfeed was saying that they didn't initially intend to have people ingest news from these feeds. I'm sure it was the same for Twitter. It was more of a status updates to keep in touch with friends and 
and colleagues and, and family. But now it's like actually a place where we go and get news. And we're talking about conditioning people and behaviors of people. Is there anything that we're doing to combat the false information that's on social media that teaches us about security awareness? Like you might see an ad about a security product on social media, but you don't really have any information on whether or not that's a valid security product or if it's even going to be helpful for someone like you. Are we doing anything to combat information that might not be the best use of people on social media? Not in any statistically significant way. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges. And I think I am a believer right now. I assert that social media has become part of our critical infrastructure, meaning that it has an impact on the national and economic security of the nation. And all we need to do is take a moment to look at what's happening right now with the elections and the election influence campaigns that nation state actors are taking solely using social media to do so. And I think it's very disappointing that we haven't been able to manage that. And the other anecdote that I heard was from the individual who at Facebook who developed the like button. And he said, you know, when we developed that button, it was to create positive energy, create positivity in the environment. And he said, never in a million years would we have imagined that it was one of the primary tools that is leading to teenage depression and in some case, an increase in young female suicides because of that sense of not fitting in. And so while I appreciate that, hey, we never meant for this to happen, the point of the fact is that it has happened. And so these companies have a responsibility to alter their business model and to either recognize it and adjust accordingly or to eliminate it. And we're not seeing real efforts of any sort of impact on either front. And I worry more for the election, not about election interference, because I have a lot of confidence in the ability of our intelligence, our defense uh, efforts, as well as industry to thwart election interference. It's not going to be easy, but we've done a good job. What I am completely concerned about is our ability to manage election influence, because that is where the objective of election influence is to sow discord in America and to encourage doubt in our democratic institution. And we're not seeing any legitimate strong effort to truly alter that to your initial question. And we have government has to be working with this industry and doing a better job. It seems like social media is becoming this very negative place. Like you said, when you mentioned the depression and suicide of young girls all around the world, that hits home for a lot of folks. It hits home for me. I have three daughters. And when you think about even our national security, I feel like there needs to be something that's done, whether to block the source of this negativity or on the consumer side of educating folks about the realities of social media and these things. Is it a happy medium or is there a silver bullet to help fix some of this stuff? Well, as always, I, I don't think there's ever you know one solution or a silver bullet. I, I absolutely think educating individuals on what social media does is a key piece to this. And you're certainly seeing more of that. I mean, you saw some boycotting this year and recognizing that. But I think we've made national security a, um, it can't be a revenue issue. And the education and the social piece of this, it is where do the responsibilities lie? And I don't think we can expect the industry to self-regulate. And it's not even that government needs to come down with regulation, although that might be a destination. I would first just like to see this the engagement of industry and government to talk through 
what's going on and what's required. I think it's a two-pronged approach to answer your initial question. It's that education and awareness, but there absolutely has to be additional action that puts the guardrails on these companies so we're not always in the position of having them react to something after something awful has happened. Seems like there's a lot of emphasis we need to focus on when it comes to education. I actually just took some security training myself, and I think part of the challenge, at least with doing online learning, is the ability to stay focused and not just try to rush through or breeze through the training. What do you see as some opportunities or ways that we can make cybersecurity and these types of efforts more entertaining and consumable by the end user? It's a great question because what we are now in, in this 24-7, don't have reduced attention spans. How do we create these messages? And it's something that we're actually focused on a lot at the Cyber Readiness Institute. We've started creating these short videos on passwords and USB use and phishing and software updates to say, here's essentially the state of affairs. Here's what you need to do and make it simple, make it entertaining. I've seen some great human behavior companies that, you know, sort of make a, uh, a joke out of it where, you know, security, they've personified security in a person and they do almost a cartoon. You do see people getting more creative with it. And I think the key piece is quick, digestible bites of information. What we are seeing more and more of is that video is a great tool in a vehicle. I mean, certainly the, the growth of YouTube demonstrates that. And I think being able to create this, these videos, that these e-learning bursts, but also prescriptive tools has been very effective. And as I said, as we look, as the Cyber Readiness Institute builds out its content, we're lining up more with that kind of method to be able to just deliver this information, as you said, in more entertaining and accessible ways so people don't get bored. As more of our lives are moved online, you think about voting And you would hope that one day we'd be able to vote online, maybe through our phones or an application of some sort. How far away are we, if ever, are we from being able to vote from the comfort of our own homes? You know, it's it's an interesting question because I think we have a long way to go on authentication. But I did hear something interesting lately, which said, you know, we're looking for how to create strong authentication of who we are. And that no uncertainty, this is who you are, however we get to that place. But the point that was made by this journalist was, if we do that, we make it much easier for a nation state actor looking to conduct any type of malicious activity to validate who's who, and then to create that that malicious activity. So I think in our efforts to streamline and create ease, we can't make everything frictionless. Uh, I had somebody just recently ask me about consolidating water utilities to one utility across the country. There are 350,000 water utilities. And I said, I I don't actually think that that's the destination. Um, Certainly you can consolidate to some extent, but when we make things so easy, we have to remember that we not only make it easy for ourselves, but we make it easy for a malicious actor. And when you synthesize and condense so that it's a single point of access, it can also become a single point of failure. So I'm not rushing to that place where we have to vote online anytime soon or our phones, because I don't think that that in and of itself as a tool is the right answer. I think having it as an option certainly makes sense and being able to create some of those digital options, but we are not seeing that right now. And I think we have a long way to go. But I think the broader piece is 
Remember, if you can turn your lights off from 3,000 miles away from a a vacation, somebody else can turn your lights off from 3,000 miles away or wherever they are. And I think we have to be careful that in this effort to be fast and easy, we don't do that at the risk of security. Very true. Even though it sounds like it would be very convenient to vote remotely, I would love it, but I do see the risk and that's the downside. (laughs) Don't you want the sticker? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you know what also comes to my mind is like the just centralizing all of our data. Like I think like we're just running towards that faster and faster, putting all of our information into fewer and fewer applications, less owned by ourselves at the end of the day, we own the data, but not actually the application. And something that comes up quite a bit, at least when I'm talking to individuals inside and outside of cybersecurity is ransomware. But I haven't heard too much about ransomware from the cloud. Are there things that you're tracking, like threats that can compromise the fact that we're going to the centralized data store? So you've got a lot of you've got a lot of great questions in that because I think like anything we always talk to cyber to uh, small businesses about is just remember there's no there's no holy grail of a security solution. You're never going to have something that protects you unconditionally. And so when we talk about the cloud, certainly the cloud helps small businesses that don't have the ability to secure and protect data at a level that is appropriate for some of them. But with that, you would imagine then the, the cloud is vulnerable. And so one of the things that we talk to small businesses about is go with cloud service providers that have a brand and a reputation that they're going to look to protect. There's going to be a proliferation of cloud service providers given everybody's movement to the cloud, but you've got to be careful on, on who you choose. And so I think there are always vulnerabilities. We're not seeing anything specific. We certainly saw the Capital One hack last year with AWS and For me, it called into question the responsibility of cloud service providers to ensure their clients are secure, because my understanding was that there was an awareness of that vulnerability in Capital One before the hack happened. But AWS didn't really have a responsibility to make sure that it was fixed. And I think that there are are different elements here. But the point that you're making about data is so important, because I had read uh, recently that data surpassed the value of oil as the most valuable global asset about 18 months ago. And so every company holds data. Not every company has oil, but absolutely every company holds data, which makes every company valuable, not just to themselves, but to malicious actors. And so how we protect that data is so critical. And I think we've got to look at the growth and maturity of the cloud to make sure that it continues to stay aligned with the threat environment. When you think about data, you think about secure by default. I love the the point that you mentioned about these third parties, these cloud providers, and their ability to help protect the data of all of their customers. One thing we've talked about many times on the podcast is that I think folks should reach out. If you're on a small team and you're using these third-party cloud providers, is to reach out to your cloud provider and say, hey, am I doing this correctly? I would like to secure my data as best as I can. And I would like some help in doing that. I think sometimes we feel as practitioners that we can't reach out for help because it makes it feel like that we're the ones that don't know what we're doing. Would you say that there's anything in addition to that that folks could do on the SMB side or even enterprise in order to protect their data more securely? So Chris, I think all of those points are so important, which is as an 
a business, you need to know what your principles are and your risk management profile and how you're prioritizing your data and your assets. And you need to make sure that any third-party supplier vendor with whom you operate has those priorities in mind as well and are making the same assessments and judgments and decisions around those priorities so that that your baseline level of security is consistent across your supply chain. Because I think one of the key pieces in all of this is the, some of the greatest vulnerabilities lie certainly in the supply chain because you have disparate approaches and a not necessarily aligned sense of security. And it becomes so important for these small businesses to ask the questions to make sure that whichever third party they're working with understands, hey, this is my critical asset. I know that you can't secure everything equally. This is what you need to prioritize. And then there's just the basic business model that you're paying for these businesses to work with you. So you should certainly expect that they will have your best interest at heart and make sure that they know what that is. Such a great point. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for being on the podcast today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, Cyber Readiness Institute, and everything else that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that? So just log on to the Cyber Readiness Institute website. It's bcyberready.com. And my information is all there. My email is ktodd at cyberreadinessinstitute.org. And I'm always very open to receiving input and feedback. And so look forward to uh, hopefully to hearing from, uh, from some of your listeners. Absolutely. And we'll be sure to drop all of those details in the show notes, along with the website and your email. Truly appreciate it, Kirsten. And we'll see everybody next time. Thanks so much, Ron and Chris. Great to be with you. 